I'm thankful for many of the prayer requests that have come in, and uh, I'm thankful, and I'll explain later, but I'm thankful for uh, the person who Bill was talking to that uh, over a mind, which is from a wrong number. And uh, we're thankful that we can pray for them this morning with the things that are on her heart. But I'm also thankful on the other side of things that uh, for the small things, I'm thankful that uh, even as Ryan and I and, and such are attempting to do things that are serious and, and such about worshiping you and leading your people, that we're still up here laughing and just enjoying each other's company that is able to be because of you. I thank you for, as weird as it may sound, God, I thank you just for the fact that church is indicative of life, and life is not just one-dimensional or two-dimensional, but life is full of ups and downs, of laughs and sorrows, of truths and questions, and that, that's all here, and we should engage, and we should embrace as a church all aspects of what real life is, even on Sunday morning in a worship service. So I thank you for the, for the dichotomy, it seems, of laughter and, and also serious prayers. I thank you for the seriousness of being able to look at your word and worship you while also knowing that you give us joy in the fact that, that the people in here are our family. Just thank you for being a God that... Just thank you for being the God and that nothing else and no one else could ever come close to. I pray that the words we speak and study today are glorifying to you, that lift the burdens from some and increase conviction in others, whatever it needs to be today, God. Let this be for you and your glory, and out of that glory, may your children and may your church be glorified, encouraged, and drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <sighs> Good to see you all. It really is. I'm glad you're all here. And it's always a privilege to stand up in front of you and open this library of wisdom and knowledge and truth. And today we're going to do it, as Ryan said, a little bit different. We're going to preach through all of chapter 9, and I've, I figured you suffer enough through longer sermons sometimes, and I figured I'd break it up a little bit and, uh, and help our... Uh, help ourselves refocus a little bit. But thank you, Ryan and Eric, for being flexible with the format. Thank you, Joe and Spirit, who will be with us in communion. Um, and thank you for, uh, I don't know, who's, who's doing pastoral prayers? Are you, and thank you, Mark, at the end, and Casey, for being willing to do pastoral prayer at the end. Thank you, all of you, for being a part of this. Today, we're going to cover some fairly well-known uh, stories, very well-known uh, scriptures in Matthew 9. And I was, as I was thinking about how to uh, introduce this, one story kept coming up, one anecdote kept coming up, and I've used it maybe once before, so uh, if you happen to remember this, I apologize. Just enjoy the joke anyway. So in thinking about this chapter, this, the anecdote that kept coming in mind was the parable of the birds. Maybe no one knows this. <laughs> there was once a young man uh, whose uh, mother was living by herself, and she was getting a bit older, and, um, and he wanted to give her some company. And so he went to the pet store, and, uh, and he, you know, he, he was fairly well off, and he said, I'm going to give my mother the best kind of pet that will keep her company, that will be able to, to, to be a companion, true companion, won't need much maintenance. And he came to this pet store, and he came across these two exotic birds. 
And he looked at him, and, and uh, the sign said, say something. And so he asked the bird a question. Well, the bird answered to his surprise, and he realized that they were talking parrots. And, and the sorter came over and said, yes, these birds are, are special. They're unique. They're the best conversationalists in the world. You don't need to, to be, teach them anything. They already know, have a great vocab, and they can hold conversations about a range of subjects. They're amazing, super birds. And he said, how much? Well, that's the hard part. They are $20,000 each. And the guy went, uh, but as I said, he's fairly well off, and his mother deserves it. And so he bought the birds, arranged them to be uh, uh, to arrive at her doorstep, and uh, included a note saying, you know, enjoy these, please, love your son. The delivery date came, he didn't hear anything. A few days later, he didn't hear anything, and so finally he called his mother and said, hey, mom, how's it going? And she, you know, hi, it's good to talk to you, how you doing? And then... Finally, he was like, so, what about the birds? Did you like the birds? And she goes, oh, yeah, they were delicious. And he said, Mom, those were $20,000 each. Why did you get, it, why, how could you eat them? And she goes, well, then they should have said something. <laughs> the point of that story is, well, it's, it's a couple things. <laughs> the point is maybe always include instructions. But the point that I want to take away from that story this morning is that oftentimes we do things, and we can even maybe do the right things, but unless we actually know the why that those things are done, sometimes we end up with dinner instead of a companion. Now, don't take that too literally, because that can get us in trouble real fast. But <laughs> we need to know the why. We need to know the why behind things. Otherwise, the hows and the whats, either we will get wrong or eventually they will not sustain us for very long. Only a why can actually drive people to change their entire self. Only a why can keep people going whenever it gets hard and dark. Only a why can really inspire people instead of just help people comply. Only a why. And the why question that I want to approach today isn't a traditional why question, but the question of Matthew 9, which really started all the way back in Matthew chapter 7, that will end somewhere between 12 and 14, depending on how I approach it, is this. What does King Jesus mean? In a sense, the question is, put another way, why do you follow King Jesus? Why is he your king? Why is he worth being your king? Why are you following him? Why are you doing these things in his name? What does King Jesus mean in your life? What does King Jesus mean to you? What does King Jesus mean? These are good questions to ask. And Matthew 9 approaches them from a very unique angle. As was read already... After he healed the demon-possessed men with the pigs, he got into a boat, crossed over to his own city, and some people brought him a paralytic. Now, we know this from the uh, Gospel of Luke, that he was teaching in a house, and Luke records that they actually brought the paralytic, paralyzed man through the roof. This is a story that uh, we talked about earlier with the kids' songs. Uh, Matthew doesn't include those details, which is interesting, not just because he chose not to, but because obviously that's not the point. Now, I said this before already, we have to respect the point that the gospel writer wants to make. And in this case, Matthew's not concerned about those details. He gets right to the heart of the matter. When Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, much is made of who's the there. Is he talking about his friends? Is he talking about the man lying there? Well, I think it's all of them because, you know, a bunch of friends aren't just going to come over and say, Here, let's go. And he's like, Where are we going? Do you want to get healed by Jesus? Yes, they all have faith. And he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, or immediately, as that word says, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. You see, even nowadays, you don't just go around saying, Lindsay, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You're good. You're good. I mean, we know, but you're good. You know, Jim, your sins are forgiven. Peter, you Even nowadays, even nowadays, people might look at you like you're crazy or just odd. But even nowadays, if we really mean it, we start to look at people and we go, oh, okay, buddy, whatever. This wasn't just that, that attitude there. It went a step farther because this was actually pure blasphemy because Jesus was claiming the authority of God. And only God can forgive sins. As they are saying, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, why do you think evil in your hearts? John talked a little bit about evil this morning. It was a good class. We could delve into that. But Matthew's point is this, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man. That's an important thing. That's an important thing that we're not going to get into today, but the Son of Man, I invite you at some point, trace that phrase, Son of Man, from the Gospels, all through the New Testament, all the way back to Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. It's very important, and I'm going to skip it today. I just want you to know that I'm skipping it, but I also want you to know that it's very important. Back to the story. Has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And behold... He went. We know this story. We know this truth. We know many of the details that we tend to focus on. And we know that Jesus does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. And that's obviously the first thing that no matter what your approach is, we must deal with first and foremost. That by saying to forgive sins, I can forgive your sins, and then in a sense backing it up, Jesus is indeed claiming to be something that no one else can make a claim and easily back it up by raising the man, by saying, which is easier. <laughs> he can indeed prove he has the authority to forgive sin. The first and foremost point in the passage is one that no matter who preaches it, they should always say, this is the main point, Jesus claims God's own authority and proves he has it. And I want to add this point to it, not only proves that Jesus has God's authority, but is God's very authority as God incarnate on earth. I read a meme today, or, or not today, but earlier, and I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was something along the lines that Jesus reveals the perfect God as a man, but Jesus also reveals the perfect man in God. Now, Jesus can do things that obviously we can't. If you can, I invite you to stand up and you know, <laughs> say something, like the bird. But the thing is, all of us are meant to be a reflection of who Jesus is. Jesus is showing us what it is like to be a man under God's authority. Now, God had tasked him with certain things that none of us can do, at least as far as my knowledge, about healing, being able to... Uh, to 
cast out demons and such. But in the end, that comes through God's power through Jesus. Jesus himself is operating as a man, and he's showing us what it is like to live under God's authority, to trust God completely, to show us what it's like to walk faithfully day by day, moment by moment. And that very act has the authority of God in it. We tend to focus on Jesus' big things, and we should. But do we remember that there are days that pass in between these big events in the Scriptures? There are days and things that Jesus does with his disciples, his prayers, the things that Matthew doesn't record. John talks about how he could fill tons of books with the things that, are, that Jesus did, but instead he limited it to these things. Why? That you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus not only has God's own authority, but Jesus is God's authority. Therefore, an example given by Jesus, an example of how to act, how to live, how to pray, how to treat people is authoritative. But the second thing I think this passage tells us, and this is where I might get to meddling a little bit, is that paralysis is not a kingdom option. What I mean by that, taking just the text literally, is that a man was paralyzed, unable to move. And Jesus says, not a problem. Looking out a little bit, the question is, how many of us are either paralyzed in our own faith, even contentedly so, of neither moving towards Jesus, but also not moving any farther away from him? In a sense, not moving. Paralyzed in our transformation, paralyzed in our spiritual development, paralyzed in our walk, paralyzed with who our friends and social circles are, paralyzed in the way we serve, paralyzed in our witness to the world. While this is a true thing that happened, it also teaches us that paralysis is not an excuse. Paralysis is something that Jesus deals with, and the question we must ask ourselves is what tends to paralyze us in faith, in life, in work, in how we act, in how we treat people? What I mean by paralyzed, like I said, is not moving closer to God. Obviously, we're moving farther away from God. That's something else entirely. But many Christians, I'm not saying you, maybe you, Many Christians are indeed paralyzed. We're not getting any, put it crudely, we're not getting any, any worse, but we ain't getting any better. <laughs> what are the things that paralyze us in our life that sometimes we use as an excuse to not serve Jesus in the kingdom the way that he commands us to serve? What are the paralyses in life that we're content with? You know, that's just not my gift. So I'm not going to talk to that person about Jesus. You know, I'm not a very good prayer, so I heard someone complain about something. This woman behind me in line at Walmart, true story that happened last week, is crying behind me. I'm not going to ask what's going on and can I pray for her. Because that's just not my gift. Hey, we need someone to help out with this ministry. You know, you just don't want me. I'm free, but I can't do it. I'm not guilting you to serve. I'm not doing that. I'm not guilting you for anything, but I'm asking in what ways are we comfortable not moving closer to God, like God. Jesus has the authority. And his authority says that being paralyzed in something is not something Christians can be. I would almost argue, based on Revelation, that he would rather us 
be moving toward evil because then at least he and, I, he and you can know where you're going. Question to consider in this first part. What paralyzes us that we have not let Jesus deal with? Speaking of being metaphorically paralyzed, <clears throat> we meet the character who's also the author of the book. And we have looked at tax collectors before, and to say that it was not a desired office, if you wanted to still have a home, have a family, have standing in your society, you may get rich, and I'll explain why in a moment, but it was not desired. You see, tax collectors were people, were Jews in, their, in, the, in Jerusalem, in, the, in Israel, who were basically commandeered by the Romans and said, you need to tax your people. Now, here's the tax that we need. You are free to set your own tax, however. What do you think that does? Well, if the required tax by Rome is five, if I also then charge ten, I get to pocket five denarii, or 12, or whatever. Suffice it to say, tax collectors became very well known for jacking up the prices, for extorting what was required to be able to feather their own books and pockets and purses. Even the honest tax collectors, which I say honest because obviously there's a reason that sinners and tax collectors, as a saying, went together, were thought of this way. It doesn't matter what you did. If you were a tax collector, you were several things as a Jew. As a Jewish tax collector, you were an outcast of society. You were aligned with Rome. You were aligned with the powers that be and the governor and Caesar. You had no place in society. Because of that, you were viewed as a traitor. You're extorting your fellow Jews. You're extorting your family. You're extorting your brothers and sisters. Leviticus even has rules about not overcharging. The whole book of Micah is about unfair scales. Traitor. Obviously, as I already said, a tax collector was synonymous with corruption because of the potential profit they could make. They were unclean. And I say this word unclean because we have records that not only were tax collectors sometimes excommunicated from their families, but they were not welcome at the temple. They were not allowed to come in. In fact, they were supposed to stay out and come no closer than the court of Gentiles. To a Jew saying, you are the same as Gentiles? Ouch. We also have writings of many Jewish fathers outlawing their daughters even being um, approached or talked to by tax collectors, let alone marrying them. So as a Jew, let's see, where are you? You're an outcast. You're viewed as a traitor. You're automatically corrupt. You have no place in Jewish society. You are unwelcome in every aspect, it seems, just about, of Jewish society. And on top of that, what are the worst insults you could have? We were a sinner. Let's go back to outcasts for a minute, though, because keep in mind, these are Jewish people. Were they welcomed in Rome? Were they welcomed by Roman citizens or Roman garrisons? No. Rome was a conquered state. They were their subjects. So Matthew, as a tax collector, was outcast by his own people. Had nowhere to go. And was outcast by the government which he served. Talk about being paralyzed when you literally, quite literally, have nowhere to go and no one to turn to and wondering about where your life is going. 
I probably could make some application just from that. But Jesus sees him, sees Matthew, sees Levi, and says, you, follow me. Meanwhile, Simon the Zealot's like, what? <clears throat> we'll deal with that later in Matthew. <laughs> you who are an outcast, you who are a traitor, you who are a sinner, you who are unclean, unwelcome, follow me. The obvious question is, <laughs> we can infer how the other Jews felt about Jesus extending his invitation to Matthew. The obvious question I don't have up on the screen is, who is your Matthew? That who might you be a little perturbed if all of a sudden they showed up at church and became a follower of Jesus and sat alongside you? We're not going to dwell on that one today, however. He goes, and Matthew throws a party and invites his tax collector friends and sinner friends. And... The Pharisees, as they do, saw this and said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I can almost imagine, and maybe they even did, I can almost imagine them coming up to the disciples outside the house where Jesus was, Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well, those who are well have no need of a physician. For those who are sick, Alan brought up an interesting point this morning in class that Jesus rarely ever condemned what the Pharisees taught. But he did. He did condemn them on their actions. Notice that the Pharisees are not making a theological or doctrinal statement. They're not appealing to any law. But they're simply asking the question. Because Pharisee by nature was one who was separate and apart. Holy. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call, not to call the righteous, but the sinners. An interesting question from this is a metaphor that, when I read this, it popped up at me. Is that it occurs to me, I'm going through some doctor stuff. I'm developing some sort of adult onset asthma, which is weird, but it's the Willamette Valley, so who knows? Only a couple of people laughed at that. That was a mistake. <laughs> it occurs to me that often... Doctors never only spend time with other doctors. And in fact, clinics and hospitals are where people who are sick go. Now, this is an obvious thing. But just imagine real quick if doctors only spent their time around other doctors thinking about how to cure people or researching how to cure people or, or looking at each other. There's some who do that, but aren't you glad that your doctor is not like that? Aren't you glad that your doctor, whenever you are sick, whenever you're in need, you call him and he's like, or she's like, yeah, come on in. Not like, ugh. Eh. I can't, no, I, I can't be close to you right now. <laughs> the question then for us Christians, or rather the statement I want to make, <laughs> is that the righteous from this principle should never only spend their time with themselves. This goes along to what we were talking about before. Fellowship, church fellowship is huge, and there comes a point that, you know, there are sayings about it, bad company corrupts good morals. There comes a point, there's a harmony here, obviously, but... We in the church, we as Christians, if all we do is spend every waking moment, if all we do is spend every time that the church is all, if all we do is spend time on other Christians, 
Our company is the Pharisees, and not Christ, because that's not where Christ is. The righteous should never only spend their time with themselves. Not necessarily here, but it is interesting. I've had conversations saying, hey, we should do this. And the response I get is, well, that takes away from our time. And my answer is, isn't our time supposed to be devoted to those who need it? He then says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice was the pinnacle of Jewish law. It was what you did in order to gain forgiveness and mercy from God. But Jesus, in essence, flips it on its side. God, through sacrifice, gives you mercy and implies so that you may show mercy to those who need it. God shows you love so that you may love. You are holy. Why? Because God is holy so that way you can be holy, not set apart in a way so that way you may show people what holiness is like and be like that, that they may come to be like me. Mercy, not sacrifice. Now, it's interesting here in the context we're talking about people. Later on, Romans 12, as I'll bring up in a few minutes as well, will say, make your life, ye Christian, Paul says, a living sacrifice, that you may do the will of God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That word worship is actually the worship that priests use, by the way, connecting that with First, with first Peter and Hebrews, that we are the priests of the New Covenant. All works together, this Bible. But we are not to ask sacrifices of those who first need mercy. So the question is, what do we sometimes insist people sacrifice before offering and showing them mercy? They can't come to church because fill in the blank. We can't give to them because fill in the blank. And are there sometimes valid reasons for this? Yes. Is it overused as a reason to not do something for people? Yes. What do we sometimes insist people sacrifice themselves before offering them and showing them mercy? For our lives are to be a spiritual and living sacrifice. And sometimes we ought to sacrifice that which we think is important in order to do the will of God. He goes on, and this is important in the context. The disciples of John came to him at this time and saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? According to the Didache and early church sources, going from the early traditions, there were set times in the week when Pharisees would fast. In fact, the church, after the death of Jesus, had a different set time, according to the Didache, than the Pharisees to differentiate themselves. It was a spiritual discipline, which is good, but had formed into habit, which can be good, also sometimes not. This is what they're talking about, the set times that tradition has proclaim that you are to fast. Not necessarily to fast, and I covered this when we talked about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, not necessarily times that are most beneficial to fast or responsive fasting, but it's the fasting that you gain something from. It's the fasting that I do this and I know this in order to grow closer to God, which is not a bad thing necessarily. This is a fast that we're talking about. Set times, set things that every Jew is expected to do that Jesus was not. Why do you do this, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Immediately we know the context here, not just from the last 
passage. But this context, he's talking about people. He's talking about the response of fasting. He's talking about right now, my people need to soak up everything they can for me. They don't need to fast. They don't need to be in mourning. They don't need to respond. They need to respond to me right now. There will be a time when I'm not here and they will fast to do that. But now is not the time. Because why? And he explains it. Why is this so? Because, Jesus continues, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, but the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine poured into old wineskins, or else both are destroyed. The context, keep in mind, everyone, the context is people. And I say that because oftentimes this passage with the cloth and with the wineskin is often taken out of its context, and yes, that's a I'm saying that on purpose, and applied to, well, this is Jesus instituting the New Testament. This is Jesus instituting the church. This is Jesus instituting and saying why that the old law is either outdated or or bad or no longer to be followed. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that the New Testament never says that the Old Testament is never to be followed and outdated. It says it's fulfilled, which means to make full. But the context isn't covenant. The context isn't Throw some words at you know what they mean. Dispensationalism. It's not about this age or that age. This is about people. What is Jesus saying when he's saying, when talking about people, that no one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. No one pours new wine into an old wineskin. He's talking about people. What is he talking about? Jesus is saying, especially while I am here with these people, while I am here with my disciples, while I am accessible, which you would be for all time, just not the point. While I am accessible, don't fast in mourning. And don't draw away from me. But what I'm trying to do is I am trying to make, not theology new, he will, he does, but I'm trying to give and make people new. I'm trying to give you not just a new way of thinking, but a whole new life. If we take seriously passages like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, ah, that's on. Why is that on all the time now? Frank, I just broke it. Pay this no mind. As I struggle with this for a minute. If we take passages seriously, like 1 Corinthians 5.17, Romans 6, 3 and 4, it's not just about learning something new. It's not just about believing something new. But when Christ comes, literal new creation has come. We are new in Christ. We are new, redeemed people. Not just what we think or what we know, but who we are, the Spirit in us. The very essence of humanity that God created and breathed into us on creation is new. So when Jesus is talking about wineskins and cloth, he's not talking about covenants or testaments or anything of the sort. He's saying that, look, I'm not here just to give a patch onto your old life that you may continue on hunky-dory. I'm here to give you a whole new life. Tech win question we need to ask ourselves from this that do we just try to often patch up our own life in Christ or are we willing to truly be made new and live as Christ demands 
You see, the whole thing about the whole new wine and old wineskins is that when new wine was poured into them, it would ferment and bubble up and gases would come in. The new wineskin had to expand in order to accommodate it. You can't do that with old wineskins because they would, they would burst. They would be destroyed. Too many Christians in this day and age, and throughout history for kind of a lot, I even do it. I'm not talking to you like, you better, you better. I do it too. I try to insert Jesus into something in my old life, something that I'm comfortable with, something that I don't want to change. And oftentimes, either he tears off, I tear off, or something worse happens. Jesus is incompatible with our old life, with our old selves, and only, only, only is in new life and only gives new life. And we must be made new in order that we ourselves can expand, as it were, to fit the new way of living, thinking, breathing, acting, kingdom life. The question this passage teaches us, do we try to just patch up our life in Christ? Or are we willing to truly be made new and live as Christ and Christ only demands? This, this question of this passage, and there's a brief pause in chapter 10 as we transition to now the, the ministry of the apostles and disciples. But it's because he's transitioning to the ministry of the apostles and disciples, he wants to put a button, in a sense, on this question, who is King Jesus? And he ends with a couple of stories in rapid fire. And these, for the sake of purposes today, don't require deep explanations. But yet someone comes to him and says, My daughter has just died. Come lay her hand on her and she will live. Pretty bold for someone to come ask. But also then keep in mind, there's a second story in the middle here. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind and simply touched the fringe of his garment. In faith, she said, If only I touch it, touch his hem of his garment, I can be made well. Talk about faith. I don't need a word, Jesus. I don't need a blessing. I don't need you to even look at me. I know that because of who you are, I just need to touch your cloak. Jesus came and healed the daughter from deathly sleep. And word of this went out through all that district. Afterwards, as Eric read, to blind do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes and he said, According to your faith, it will be done. As they went away in verse 32, a demon-possessed man who was mute came and he healed him. There are deeper things to go in here, but for our purposes today, let's just take a thousand-foot view at this last section. Matthew is telling us after his authority has been questioned, after he's been accused of working with demons, after he's accused of violating the Sabbath, Jesus is ending the pic or Matthew is ending the picture of Jesus by what Jesus is doing, making a mute and deaf man see and hear, making the blind see, making a deaf and mute man hear and talk caught that. <laughs> Took a minute, but I caught it. Having a mute and deaf man hear and talk. Having a blind man see. Have a, a woman 
who was losing her blood, healed in faith and raising the dead. The question that Matthew is inherently asking, not explicitly, but what he's asking is, who is this man Jesus? All the way from the end of chapter 7. Who is this man reaches out and cleanses a leper of the outcast of society? Who is this man who can entertain the request of a Gentile to heal his servant? Who is this man who has power over nature itself? Who is this man who has power over evil and demons themselves? Who is this man who can not only heal the paralyzed and get them moving towards him, but forgive sins? Who is this man who can call the outcasts and traitors of society? Who is this man who can make life new and pour into them like new wine and fix them not just by patching, but give them a completely new set of clothes? Who is this man who can heal the dead? Who is this man who can make the blind see? Who is this man who can heal? Who is this man who can make them talk and hear who he is? Who is this man? Who is this man? He is a man who in the midst of healing every disease and every affliction, when he sees the crowds, has compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he is a man that is choosing to have his kingdom and will done, not by himself, but with fellow workers, fellow heirs of the promise of the kingdom, who will reap and sow and plant in his name. Why can't you be paralyzed? Because Jesus not only needs you, but calls you and wants you in his kingdom to serve alongside him. Why is he calling you? Don't, doesn't Jesus know who I am? Doesn't he know what I've been? Doesn't he know my fault? Does he know my sins? Yes. But now is not the time to mourn. Now is the time to say, Jesus, I want a new life. I want to see when I've been blind. Jesus, I want to hear when I've been deaf. Jesus, I want to speak when I've been mute. Jesus, I want to be healed in the ways that I've had pain. And Jesus, I have been dead in my sin, and I want new life. What does King Jesus mean to you? What does King Jesus mean to the people around you? What does King Jesus mean to the world where you are? In some way, shape, or form, Everything that I've just talked about has happened to each one of us. And King Jesus says, I can handle it. Follow me. Because the workers are few. But with the fields are plentiful. Who is Jesus to you?